Uh, first of all, let me say that I am appreciative of all of you being here. I know that Wednesday night is not easy, especially for those who work outside the home and have small children. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of moving parts to get here, and I certainly appreciate you being here tonight. Let me call your attention to the book of Daniel and chapter 2. In a couple of minutes, I will be reading verses 20 to 22. Last week, uh, most of you know that every week on Wednesdays, I send something that I have titled A Wednesday Thought. And the idea is usually there's an article, sometimes a video, that I attach to the email. And I write a little introduction uh, to it. And last week, I sent out an article that was dealing with God's sovereignty, and especially God's sovereignty as it relates to the existence of evil. The question that the article asked was, how can a God who is good be sovereign over evil and yet remain unstained by it? How can a God who controls all things, and we believe that God controls all things, control the very existence of evil and the evil events that take place in our world, and at the same time not be the author of evil, as our confession ably says, although God controls evil, uses evil, has decreed that evil exists somehow, yet he is not the author of evil, nor does he solicit the evil that man does. This problem, which is referred by theologians to as theodicy, that is the justification of God in the light of the existence of evil, has been troubling mankind since the beginning almost, since evil entered the world. We know that God is not the author of evil, but how then does it all work? I have no idea. I am reminded of something that R.C. Sproul said one time during one of his sermons. During his time in college, this very issue of theodicy came up during one of his classes. And at that moment, he decided that he was going to tackle the problem and he would settle the matter once for all. Typical young person, right, who obviously thinks that they have all the answers. The professor... And all the other students were quick to mock this young, arrogant student who presumed to go where much greater minds have not dared to tread. Needless to say, R.C. was unable to solve the problem. And if we think that we can solve that problem, we're more foolish than he was at that time. It is impossible for us to wrap our minds around the fact that God has decreed the existence of evil somehow, some way, and yet he's not the author of it. How that happens, we can't know. Maybe we'll know when we get to heaven, but 
maybe not. Maybe one of those things that, like I tell my wife sometimes, we may get there and we may ask the Lord all kinds of questions. And he might just say, none of your business. And we'll be satisfied with that answer. We're not satisfied with it now, but we'll be satisfied with that answer then. But here's the bottom line. If God is in control of everything, then we can have great comfort. The things that take place are not some sort of random set of events. God is not trying to make lemonade out of lemons. The crucifixion of Christ is the greatest example of God's control over the evil that man does in order to bring about, in this case, the greatest good that anyone could ever imagine. Peter told his audience in his sermon during Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that Herod, Pilate, and the Jewish leaders all had their evil intent in crucifying Christ. Each one of them crucified Christ for their own purposes. Pilate did it because, well, he was a coward and he just wanted to leave well enough alone. He didn't want to poke the hornet's nest that was the Jewish nation any more than he had already. Herod did it for his own purposes because he was an evil, wicked king. I mean, that's the long and short of it. And the Jews did it because they did not believe that Christ was the Messiah, that he was a blasphemer, that he was a pretender, and so he needed to be eliminated. And in addition to that, he also threatened their power. But Peter was quick to point out that it was God, and by God's predetermined counsel and foreknowledge that they did what they did. Thank God that he is in control. Let me read now from Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. Daniel said, May the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the periods. He removes kings and appoints kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to people of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. The absolute sovereignty of God over his creation is one of the most controversial aspects of the Reformed faith. This one issue perhaps surpasses or perhaps surpassed only by predestination, of which, really, the sovereignty of God is a subset, or we could say that predestination is a subset of God's sovereignty, is the one issue that divides Arminianism and Calvinism more than any others. Our Arminian brethren, uh, they have some issues with the Reformed faith outside of predestination and our emphasis on God's sovereignty, but, you know, there are things that, They don't lead to the heated arguments that predestination and God's sovereignty lead to. I remember when I first came to the Reformed faith, I had a discussion with one brother from the church that we were attending at the time, and it got pretty heated, I must say. I must confess. Uh, If I had to do it again, I would do it differently. But uh, it is, that was an example of how difficult it can be for Armenians and Calvinists to uh, come to an agreement 
when it comes to those issues dealing with God's sovereignty. Many cannot bring themselves to believe that God has absolute, unsparing control over the works of his hands, and that everything, and in this case, everything means everything. You know how we talk a lot of times how all doesn't always mean all. In this case, everything means everything. That takes place, takes place because God has already decreed it to happen. Nothing happens simply by happenstance. If it happens, it is because God has determined that it would happen. This idea, however, is distasteful to many who think it is unjust of God to exercise such control, especially when it comes to salvation and the works of evil, but also over practically any area of life. When we talk about salvation, when we talk about the fact that it is our belief and it is worn out by the Bible, that God is the one who elects, God is the one who decides, God is the one who chooses whom he will save, that's a difficult pill, pill to swallow to, for man, right? Man always wants to feel that they're in control. I am reminded of my own approach to this issue. As I mentioned, I was attending an Armenian church before I came to the Reformed Faith. It was a church of Christ. And I used to try to seek ways to reconcile God's sovereignty with human freedom. And when I speak of human freedom in this context, I don't mean human freedom as in we obviously have freedom to do certain things, but I mean libertarian human freedom. In other words, that freedom that is independent of God's decree. I would say things like, God has chosen not to know certain things. He has foreknowledge, but does not decree what man is to do. In other words, he had simple foreknowledge, passive foreknowledge. The idea of seeing a parade from a vantage point where you can see the beginning and the end of the parade uh, and everything in between, but you're not causing the parade to move along. And so that was my concept of the foreknowledge of God. It was simply God knows, but he doesn't decree. And it will go on, other ideas, other attempts to try to explain a way, really, in a way, the sovereignty of God. I didn't look at it as trying to explain away the sovereignty of God, but that, in effect, is what I was attempting to do. Anything not to acknowledge that God is the God that the Bible, in fact, portrays. And that is why we believe what we believe, because the Bible says so. Not because it is traditional, not because Calvin said so, or Luther said so, or any other individual said so, but because Paul said so in the Bible, because Peter said so in the Bible. This is perhaps no more obvious than in the book of Daniel, in the Old Testament, perhaps with the exception of the book of Isaiah. Daniel shows God in all his unmistakable sovereignty. Nothing happens in the book without God orchestrating it. And it is done in a way where we are seeing it. It's almost like we are given a peek behind the curtain as to how is God is doing all these things. Because uh, since there are these dreams in Daniel, and Daniel is interpreting these dreams, we can see that dynamic of how God is giving Daniel all of these answers. And so we are given a glimpse into how God works in the affairs of men more clearly, as I mentioned perhaps, than the book of Isaiah. 
Nothing happens in the book, as I mentioned, without God orchestrating it. And this is made absolutely clear as we contemplate the events that take place during Daniel's sojourn in Babylon. Let me give you a little background to the book of Daniel. And of course, the book of Daniel is one of the most popular of the books of the Bible. It is one of those books that uh, when teachers of young children uh, are looking for a book to teach, this one comes to the fore because it has a lot of nice narratives in it that lend themselves to teaching children. And they're pretty simple, right? Uh, The statue, Daniel in the lion's den, the three young men in the furnace. And so Daniel is perhaps one of the best known of the Old Testament books. But at any rate, Daniel comes to Babylon as one of the captives from Jerusalem. Uh, In about 606, uh, he comes to Jerusalem, or, or 586 rather, he comes to Babylon from Jerusalem after that city had been destroyed. It was customary for conquering powers of the time to take the best of the land back to their homeland to enrich their culture. And so Daniel was one such exile. He's immediately made part of the king's court. Some scholars believe that he was made a eunuch so that he could serve in the court and dedicate himself totally to the service of the king. We know, however, that Daniel was still faithful to his God, and he would not do anything that would be contrary to the God that he served. For that reason, we know that he was thrown into the lion's den later in the book. We're all familiar with Nebuchadnezzar's dreams concerning the statue and his own fate. No one can decipher the dreams except for Daniel. He calls the magicians, he calls all of these soothsayers to try to figure out what this dream is all about. In this case, the dream about the statue. But no one can. Daniel is the only one that can do so. And he can do so simply because God is the one that provides the meaning to the dream. This is the first dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the statue. And you remember the statue that had different uh, metals, silver, gold, iron, bronze. I, don't, I won't get into the specifics of the dream itself right now because that's not really important to the point itself that I'm trying to make. But you remember that Nebuchadnezzar has the dream about the statue and uh, the head is of gold and it's supposed to be him. The chest is uh, silver and that's, most scholars believe that that was Greece. Uh, the arms were bronze and again that's believed to be the Persian uh, empire and then the legs were iron and that's believed to have been Rome. The important aspect of the episode for our purpose is what Daniel says in verses 20 to 22. The background of which is the statue and the fact that it portrays several kingdoms. And God is giving the interpretation as to what's going to happen in the centuries to come. The point is that God will cause kingdoms to rise and fall. And Daniel makes that point here in our text. So what is the main issue that this portion of Daniel 2 addresses? There are four primary issues I submit that Daniel discusses here. First, he thanks God and says that wisdom and power belong to him. It's right to give God thanks 
He could have chosen not to reveal his will to Daniel. And he could have chosen not to reveal his will to us. He could have chosen a number of things. Uh, he could have chosen not to save us. Those of us who are in Christ are in Christ solely because he has decided that he wants us in Christ. He has chosen us in Christ solely because it's his own pleasure. It is not because we are better. It is not because we are smarter. It is not because we have uh, somehow gotten the faith to accept them or to receive them. Even the faith that we exercise is given by him. It's interesting to note that Daniel combines wisdom with power and ascribes both, both to God. God is wise. He possesses the ability to know and execute what is wise in every and all situations. So God is the only one that is completely 100% wise. All of us have wisdom to a certain extent. It is derived from God. It is subordinate to God's. And it is dependent on God's. And none of us have 100% wisdom. There are a lot of foolish things, unfortunately, that we do all too often. God is powerful. He has wisdom, but is also able to put that wisdom into practice and do what is wise. Because he has the power to carry out his will. Psalm 115, 1-3 says, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where then is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Indeed, God does whatever pleases him, and no one can stay his hand. We're accustomed to seeing wisdom and knowledge paired together, but here... There's the pairing of wisdom and might. And it is quite appropriate. Daniel was speaking to a king who could exercise complete authority over his subjects. And in a very clever way, he tells the king, although without saying so uh, in so many words, that his authority and power are subordinate. They are not, after all, absolute Daniel clarifies that the power and authority which the king has is subordinate to God's. This will be made even clearer in what follows. And so we see here that in the face of the most powerful king on earth at the time, the king of Babylon, Daniel makes no bones about the fact that the king's power is subordinate to God's and that the king serves at God's pleasure. And it is interesting to note that this is true even though the king does not know God. Even those rulers of the earth who do not acknowledge God, who do not know God, are still serving because of him. Because it is his pleasure that they serve. Interesting. Certainly something that should make us humble. Second, Daniel tells us that God changes times and periods and sets up and deposes kings. In Acts chapter 17, Paul tells the Athenians at the Areopagus that God is the one who sets the limits of time of humanity's, humanity's habitation. Read with me verses 24 to 27. And of course, you remember that the background to this is Paul gets to Athens 
And he sees in the temple all of these statues. And he sees a pedestal to an unknown God. There's no statue there. There's just to an unknown God. Uh, And he says, you know, you're very religious. You even have a a, uh, pedestal dedicated to an unknown God. Just in case, right? Want to make sure that you don't leave anybody out. And so in verses 24 to 27, he says the following. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. It is not we ourselves who determine the course of our lives, but the Lord. In the same way, even those who are our leaders are determined by God. There are times when we have righteous rulers, or at least benign and favorable to the church. Well, they may not be Christians, but they certainly are not hostile to the church and the mission of the church. But there are other times, like our present when our leaders are hostile to the ways of God and who do much against His will. Nevertheless, as I mentioned already, the good and the evil are all appointed by God and they're appointed for specific purposes. And sometimes we ask, why did that particular individual who is obviously so hostile to the church, to God, to His work, why did God allow him to come to power? But we can be sure that God has a purpose. And we look back in retrospect at history and we can say that's why that individual was in the position that he was in. Sometimes we don't know. There are times when we just don't know. But we can be sure that God knows. Isaiah 48, 28 says the following. It is I who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will carry out all my desire. And he says of Jerusalem, She will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. The context there is Cyrus coming to power after the Persians defeat the Babylonians. He comes to power, and what does he do? He decrees that Jerusalem is to be rebuilt, and that the Jews who wanted to go back were to go back. Isaiah spoke these words more than 100 years before they took place. And yet we see that God had already by name called the king that he will put him power to bring about his purposes. Commentator Jim McGuigan said the following, Slice it as you will. God runs this show, and no one has authority to exercise unless it's been given to him of God. And Daniel didn't have in mind simply godly rulers or acceptable governments. This embraced dictatorships as well as democracies. We don't have to understand it. We must trustingly accept it. Thirdly, God gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the understanding. It is ironic to the extreme when men of science, so-called science, speak of their knowledge of the world and the universe around us as though their knowledge came merely by chance. In all their so-called wisdom, they have rejected God 
And do not understand that if they know anything about the world and how it functions, it is because God, that very God they have rejected has given them the capability to know these things. It is God's world, it is God's universe, and only God understands it. And if we understand anything about the world, anything about the universe, it is because God has given us the capability to understand those things. The world goes about from one thing to the next, completely oblivious to the fact that their very lives depend on the God they ignore. Continuing in Psalm 115, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who, thr who trusts in them. Is there a greater tragedy than for man to believe himself to be the pinnacle of all creation? And let me hasten to add that in some ways, we are the pinnacle of creation. Right? But the problem is that sometimes we think of ourselves as the pinnacle of creation without even believing in creation. And that's the tragedy of it all. We are created by God, and yet we do not acknowledge that fact. In evolutionary history, men think of themselves as the epitome, and yet they deceive themselves and misuse the gift that God has given them. Work, entertainment, family, all of those things have become modern, 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 modern man's idols. But just like the idols of old, they know nothing and can do nothing. In their race to get away from God, they have constructed an existence made of vapor, which can neither satisfy nor provide them with anything of lasting value. And the very wisdom that rulers exercise, if they indeed exercise any, comes from God. And in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, who's the Babylonian king, it was the God of the despised Hebrews, those whom they have just conquered, that gave him the wisdom to rule. And again, you can see the irony in all of that, that just like Pharaoh of old, who thought that he was in command, that he was in control of the Hebrews, that they were his slaves, and yet he didn't know that the God of those very Hebrews was the one that was pulling the strings, as it were. And that's not to say we're puppets, okay? Don't misunderstand me. But the idea is simply that God is the one that's controlling all the events of history. Fourth and last, God knows all and dwells in the light, Daniel says. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.16 that it is God who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. And so God alone is the one that possesses immortality. God is the one who has, the only one who has aseity. The idea being that he is not dependent on anything or anyone else. On the contrary, everything and everyone else is dependent on God. John, 1 John 1.5 reminds us that This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. 
Psalm 139 and 12 declares that even darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Finally, Hebrews 4.13 tells us that there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must answer. I think, and I've heard this before, and I'm sure you probably have too, that the idea that God can see all about us, that there's nothing that we can hide from God, is a rather distressing thought because we can hide things from one another. You know, if we don't like this person, well, we don't have to talk to them. We don't have to tell them, hey, I don't like you, right? Uh, but we can't do that from God. If we hold secret sins, secret to other people, they're certainly not secret to God. And so that's a very uh, troubling thought. That's why it is essential for us to be open with God, open with one another, right? That is the solution. It's not be more secretive, rather, on the other hand, uh, is to be less secretive and to open up to God because God knows us uh, more better, more and better than we know ourselves. So in conclusion, the Old Testament time and time again makes it clear that God is sovereign over his creation. The New Testament, although certainly makes that point as well, uh, there are certain passages, especially in the New Testament, like Romans chapter 8, Uh, through 10, and other areas of the New Testament, especially in the letters of Paul, that make the point that God is sovereign over all his creation, for the most part, assumes that fact. And it assumes that fact, why? Because it draws heavily from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the basis for the new. And in doing so, it pretty much takes it for granted that God is sovereign. It is like God as creator. The Bible simply assumes that such is the case and doesn't go about trying to prove that God is the creator. How does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God. Right? It doesn't say, I'm going to try to explain how God exists and then try to or explain to you how he created the world. It simply assumes, takes for granted that God exists and then goes about telling us what that God has done. And even with all this, man continues to exist that he's the captain of his soul, the commander of his destiny, right? Because as I mentioned at the outset, that's our nature. We like to be in charge. Uh, when you, you see a little kid, right? And what happens when he doesn't get his way? He throws a tantrum. Why? Because he wants to be in charge. He wants to tell mom and dad, this is the way things need to be. And if you don't want it this way, well, I'm just going to throw a tantrum. I'm going to make your life as difficult as possible. And we adults do the same thing with God, right? Uh, if God doesn't let us have our way, we throw a tantrum. And we may not cry, but the effect is all the same. In reality, we have control over nothing. We control nothing. And that's one thing that uh, I think it's important for us to think about is we control nothing, so why do we worry about so much? Because if we have no control over anything, well, then our worry certainly does even less. The only thing it accomplishes is make us feel worse, bother our spirits, our bodies, right? And so worry is really 
one of the most foolish things that we can engage in. All we are, all we have, all we do have been ordained by God for His purposes and not our own. And that's also important to underline. That what God does, He does for His purposes, not for ours. Uh, It is as John MacArthur says about the scheme of redemption. God the Father has given a people as a gift to the Son. And we just get caught in the middle. It's a gift of love from the Father to the Son. Eventually the Son will return it to the Father. But it isn't for our sake. It is an inter-Trinitarian affair. And like I said, we just get caught uh, and are the beneficiaries of that redemptive story. It is a, Paul told the Corinthians, what do you have that has not been given to you? And, it has, and if it has been given to you, then why do you boast as though it had not been given to you? Now, let me hasten to add here before I finish, lest we misunderstand things, that yes, we have control over nothing, and yet we're still responsible for our sin. This is indeed a great mystery. But the fact that we cannot understand something doesn't mean that it isn't true. If God is God and can do all things, then certainly he can make man in a way that he is responsible for his sin and yet for him to ordain man's actions. And again, how that all works, I do not know. But we can be sure that in the mind of God, there's no conflict. And it is not difficult at all for him to determine how those two things can be compatible. The only possible reaction to that sovereign God is for us to completely surrender to him. How is it possible that we can do anything else? Is it possible to rationally reject God? Man today talks a lot about reasonableness, rationality, uh, intelligence. And often they talk about how religion is irrational. And yet the only rational answer that we can give to the existence of God, to the God who is all-powerful and all-knowing, is to submit and to surrender to Him. Can we run from Him like Jonah tried to do? Of course, we know how that ended. Jonah got in, ended up being thrown in the sea and swallowed by a fish. Some scholars think that he died in the belly of the fish and he was brought back to life, uh, making the type with the, resur- with the death and resurrection of Christ all the more valuable and real. But be that as it may, the fact is that he tried to run and wasn't able to do so because God is everywhere. He controls all things. He sees all things. And so there's nowhere that we can hide. In rejecting God, we will be destroying ourselves. Those who seek independence from God seek their own destruction. We cannot possibly survive without God, the God who gave us life. It's an irrational thing to try. Hebrews chapter 1 talks about God, talks about Christ as being the one who by the word of his power holds all things together. And so God holds all things together. He certainly holds our lives in the palm of his hand. In his presence are joys everlasting. And only in him can our souls find the rest that they seek. As the Lord himself told us in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome 
the world. And so if you're here tonight and you have not surrendered to that God, I encourage you to do that because that is the only smart thing to do, the only rational thing to do, the only thing that you can do, the only way that you can live this life uh, in a way that is meaningful, that makes sense, and the only way that you can leave this life knowing that what awaits you is so much greater than what you've had here. On the other hand, if you leave without Christ, then you have nothing to look forward to but suffering and death.